My name is uh, Sharon Salzberg. This is Susan O'Brien. And then uh, down below we have Mark Coleman. I don't know if you can see them. And Lila Wheeler, also known as Kate Wheeler. Uh, all of us will be teaching this retreat together, sharing um, interview contact with you and question and answer sessions in the halls and the talks and things like that. So I feel like we're embarking on a a great adventure together. I'd like to welcome all of you and thank you for coming. It's certainly an interesting time to choose to be on retreat. I was thinking just now how much of this time of year is about looking back at the past and accumulation and measuring and evaluating our disappointments and our triumphs and how much of it is about looking to the future with our ideas of what should happen and our expectations and our hopes and our dreams and conventionally speaking how very little of it is about being in the present moment and how unique and wonderful it is to take a time like this when so much of the pressure surrounding us from the culture is about the past and about the future, and use that time to cultivate a greater awareness and love and understanding of what is happening right now. So it's an interesting place um, and way to spend this season. Probably when we look back at this retreat, we'll think of it as the Catskill Renovation Retreat, when uh, often this season I think of as our anniversary season, we moved into this building in 1976 on Valentine's Day. So that was a good long time ago. And when we first moved, when we first came, which was uh, in December of 1975, to look at the place and try to decide about buying it or not. We were given a tour. It was owned by the Catholic Church at the time, the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. And some of the fathers gave us a tour. We got to that particular wing known as the Catskills, and Joseph Goldstein, who'd grown up in the Catskills, where his family owned a resort, looked at it and said, this place looks like a rundown hotel in the Catskills. (laughs) And it was very funny because he made a joke, in fact. And I sometimes use that example when I'm talking about the difference between concept and reality because we did decide to buy it, of course, and we moved in on Valentine's Day. And it was so big, we had to have somebody go around and make a map so we'd know where all the closets were and all the bathrooms were and things like that. And I came downstairs one day and looked on the bulletin board And there was the map, and underneath that wing, it said Catskills. I really laughed. I thought, oh, that's really funny. Joseph made a joke. That'll never last. And then, you know, 28 years later, it's still known as the Catskills. In fact, once, as you know, those of you who've come here now for the first time know that members of the staff will offer you a tour of the building when you come. And one friend of mine, not so very long ago, came for the first time 
and was on that tour and got to that wing and asked the person guiding the tour, why is this wing called the Catskills? And the person said, in all seriousness, because this is the wing that lies closest to the Catskill Mountains. (laughs) Which, in fact, it does not. It actually lies furthest from the Catskill Mountains. When my friend came back and told me that, I thought, why in the world would we name a wing (laughs) because of its proximity to the Catskill Mountains? It was a joke that Joseph made all those years ago. But, of course, that's what happens in our minds, in our lives. Something arises and we attribute all of these characteristics and qualities and levels of meaning and judgment to it, which it may not have inherently. And then it builds and it builds and it builds Things acquire a story, a legend, a reality that is not based in any reality. And then we defend it, you know. Yes, I know this is why it was named this, and so on. And even though all those many years ago, Joseph's comment was, this looks like a really run-down wing in the Catskills, we haven't really fixed it up. (laughs) So uh, there are other parts of the building that were much worse, (laughs) believe it or not. And so our energy went there, like redoing the the annex and so on. And this is the first opportunity we've had to really concentrate on that wing. So I'm really delighted that we're able to do that and also understand that it puts a kind of, um, almost like a sort of pressure on this retreat. You know, there are few places to walk and not as many people could come and some of you have been willing to come and stay in dorm situations um, because we don't have the entire facility available to us. But I often find in those situations there's a kind of beauty too and, and a joy as we each give up something for the sake of, of the whole or, or a greater good. And of course, it reminds me so much of my time practicing in India where sometimes the external conditions were very rough and, and uh, new, unfamiliar, involved a lot of letting go of, of comfort. And yet the joy that I remember from those times is almost unparalleled in my life because of the quality of discovery and interest and, and opening and coming to understand myself in a different way and life in a different way and a level of connection to others and generosity and what that meant to, to give up something and um, know that, that that act of giving up, of, of sharing, of relinquishing was going to the good of something greater than myself. And when we first moved here, in February of 1976, very soon after we uh, moved in, we decided to have a, kind of a luncheon for the doctors at the local clinic here because um, we knew they would be an important part of the community. We wanted them to get to know us and know what we were about and get to know them. So this group of doctors came up for lunch, and we... Uh, Amongst us was a friend of mine from India who'd been in India with us. We were talking about how very hot it gets in certain seasons in India, and she was talking about one particular time when she was staying in India and suffering quite a bit from the heat because she was going around 
from government office to government office trying to renew her visa. And she said that she was feeling especially weak because at the time she was suffering from worms, amoebic dysentery, and hepatitis. And one of the doctors looked at her completely aghast, and he said, you had worms, amoebic dysentery, and hepatitis, and you were trying to renew your visa? (laughs) He said, what were you doing, holding out for leprosy? You know, and, and that's not to imply that it's always correct to stay, you know, to the bitter end, no matter what you are suffering. But it reminded me so much of that kind of joy, of, of the strength and the courage and the endeavor and the opening that came from how much we were all learning and how so many external circumstances were not really the significant factor. And so here we are, having made the choice, you know, not to be home, not to be uh, perfectly comfortable, if that's how we experience our homes, you know, not to uh, be deciding exactly what we're going to do whenever we feel like doing it. And we've all given up something in order to be here. And hopefully in that same spirit, of, of joy and discovery. I think that's very much the nature of being on retreat. It's such an incredibly odd thing to do in this, in this culture. I know uh, many of you have been here before and many of you have not. It takes a lot of energy to disengage to come away, to retreat. It's not a a retreat with harshness or, or disdain for what we leave behind, but it's about connection. It's about taking the time to connect in ways to aspects of ourselves, to our own experience, to a bigger picture of life that we just don't have the time for sometimes. When we are so busy and so speedy, and so distracted. So it's an amazing thing to do, to have that intention to make that decision, to see what happens when we're not so totally distracted all of the time. This is from the Taoist philosopher Chuang Tzu, who said, There was a person so displeased by the sight of their own shadow and so displeased with their own footsteps that they determined to get rid of both. The method they hit upon was to run away from them, so they got up and ran. But every time they put their foot down, there was another step, while their shadow kept up with them without the slightest difficulty. They attributed their failure to the fact that they were not running fast enough. So they ran faster and faster without stopping till they finally dropped dead. They failed to realize that if they merely stepped into the shade, the shadow would vanish. And if they sat down and stayed still, there would be no more footsteps. So I think of the retreat experience as that courageous decision to stop running so much, to stay still, 
to develop a relationship with what is. And those of you who've done retreats before know that what we uncover in the course of doing a retreat is really everything. There's so many different kinds of experiences and everything is a part of the nature of meditation, the nature of retreat. Mindfulness, which is one of the most fundamental skills that we develop on retreat, is about inclusion. It's about not cutting off and not turning away and not overlooking, but including more and more and more and more in our own field of awareness, our ability to connect, to be with, to be balanced with. So it's all about inclusion. And that means that there's no experience you might be having that is like just so weird, you know, or other, that it can't be included in the process of meditation. I often liken meditation to going into an old attic room and turning on a light. What we do, what we see when we do that is actually everything. The light is like the light of awareness. It doesn't matter if the room has been dark for a day or a week or 10,000 years. We go in and we turn on the light and we see everything. We see these beautiful, remarkable treasures. We can hardly believe that such a beautiful thing exists in our very own attic. And we see these dusty, neglected corners, and we might think, ooh, I better clean that up. And we see these objects that we find very disconcerting, quite unsettling, so that perhaps we think, I thought I got rid of that long ago. What's that still doing here? We see everything that a human being can want and know and feel and fear, the entire range. And everything is a part of our experience. It's not the kind of process where we're constantly evaluating and judging and trying to reject certain things and grab onto others and somehow have some kind of triumphant experience so of bliss or something so that we can go home and say, yeah, I did great, you know. But more about opening to everything. And that's why there's not really a sense of failing or not doing it right or not having the right experience. This is the key message, which is very, very hard to believe, and that is it doesn't really matter so much what is happening. What matters is how we are relating to what is happening so that if we are in the habit of cutting off or being very judgmental or pushing away or clinging foolishly, we learn to be more balanced with what is instead. If we're very far back and disconnected, we learn to come forward. If we're too controlling, we learn to relax. What is happening is far less important than how we are relating to what is happening. That is the transformation, that is the revolution in our consciousness and how we are relating to what's happening. And that's somewhat more difficult to measure. One of the fundamental early meditation techniques, for example, that we'll begin with is being with the feeling of the breath, the normal, natural breath. 
And given how we are, usually it would be easy to think, well, I'm not really doing this right until I can be with like 758 breaths in a row. And much to our alarm, what we discover is that the truth is more like two, you know, or three. And then our minds are gone. We're just gone. That's how it is. One of the the mysteries and one of the liberations of the practice is that, in fact, it's not about squeezing your mind down and trying to hold on tightly to the breath and keep all thoughts from happening. It's much more about how we are when we realize our minds have wandered. Can we develop an ability to have some compassion for ourselves and some forgiveness for ourselves and some ease of heart the ability to let go, the ability to begin again. That's much more what the practice is about. And here's an example of how one of the things I've always just loved about meditation practice is that I find the really big life lessons happen in these itty-bitty little packages. You know, it's like if you say this is your first time here, or even your first time meditating, you know, and you go home, And somebody says to you, well, what'd you do? And you say, well, I sat down, I felt my breath, my mind wandered, I brought it back. It's like, so what, you know? But that is a huge thing, actually, to be able to let go with some gentleness, without harshness. To be able to let go in the recognition that nothing's been ruined, that no matter what, we can begin again. If we practice that, kind of understanding here, then what we are learning, not in just a cognitive way, but very deeply what we are learning for life is that we can do that. We can make a mistake and we can begin again, or we can lose sight of our aspiration and we can begin again, or we can stray from our chosen course and we can begin again. We're learning some very deep things about change, about letting go, about endeavor, about forgiveness. That's what's really happening. And so even though the meditation instructions may seem very simple, even dreary, and the application may take a lot of patience and starting over, and it may seem like nothing is happening, something is really happening, something very radical and transformative is happening. So this is the nature of the practice. As we unfold the instruction on the retreat, uh, every morning at at 8.30, there will be um, some new elaboration or uh, aspect of the practice, uh, beginning with the breath and moving on through awareness of the body, our emotions, uh, common typical mind states, thoughts, and so on, until we come to a place where The practice is about being aware of that very vast, inclusive sphere. The day, as you probably noticed on the schedule, goes from sitting meditation to walking meditation, the instructions for which we'll also do tomorrow, back to sitting meditation, (laughs) back to walking meditation. There's nothing much to do. But what an amazing thing. When we first opened the center, uh, one of our friends created a kind of mock brochure for us. 
and it said, now that you've been here, uh, you'd appreciate it. You know, it said things like, come to IMS and have all the tea you could ever drink and um, get to use institutional cutlery and things like that. And then he had a, a sort of motto on this mock brochure for us, which said, it is better to do nothing than to waste your time. And I really liked that. I wanted to keep that. You know, it's better to do nothing than to waste your time. Because wasting our time is like wasting our lives. And really, when we look at a day, we waste a lot of time. And doing nothing doesn't mean going to sleep or blanking out or or cutting off from experience. It means not doing the kind of compulsive things we usually do. Holding on and pushing away and avoiding and you know, um, manipulating. It's actually being able to relax somewhat and be with our experience. What an amazing thing to have the opportunity to do that and to, to seize the opportunity to do it, which is why, you know, everybody here in some ways I really believe has done the hardest part already because it's not so easy to get here. Once you get here, it's just practice with its ups and downs and changes. But, but to have that kind of commitment or intention is actually the most difficult step. So every day we'll unfold an understanding of the practice. There'll be time uh, twice a day uh, here in the hall when you can ask questions about your practice. Um, there'll be times when we're meeting with you. Um, every night there'll be a talk about some aspect of the practice or about the Buddhist teaching. The instruction that we give, the whole nature of this meditation practice, was uh, founded in the Buddhist tradition, but it's really about universal truths. Coming here to an experience like this isn't about, isn't about becoming a Buddhist or adopting a dogma or a set of beliefs or rejecting anything else. It's about using this very supportive environment to go as deep as possible into the practice, where one of the things that helps us do nothing is that we're so taken care of. You know, our food is, is cooked, somebody rings a bell, you know, and you go somewhere, or you go somewhere else. There's very little that any of us needs to do here. We're very protected so that we can go very deep in that way. We come together to really use this environment to go deep ourselves, to support one another, to create a community based on certain values. Traditionally, when we begin a retreat, we talk about beginning by undertaking the three refuges and the five precepts. The three refuges are refuge first in the Buddha, then in the Dharma, um, which is commonly translated as as the Buddhist teaching, and then the Sangha, um, community of people who've walked a path and realized the truth. We take refuge in the Buddha. It means, again, not becoming a Buddhist or... uh, adopting a set of beliefs at all. And of course, the Buddha is so famous for having said, don't believe anything just because I said it or because 
a great elder has said it or because you've read it in a sacred text. He said, put it into practice. See for yourself what's true. And that's a very great statement about faith and confidence in a human being's ability to understand what's true for themselves. To take refuge in the Buddha doesn't then mean just thinking, oh, well, the Buddha said it, it must be true. But really it's more about the Buddha as a symbol of an awakened being, someone who had some very deep questions about the nature of existence, the nature of happiness, who in effect asked, what does it mean to be born a human being? to be born as an infant, to be so helpless, so subject to the, the actions, the behavior of those around us, and then to grow up, to get older, to get sick, whether we like it or not, to die no matter what we want, no matter what we say. What does it mean that that's actually the nature of the body? And is there a quality of peace or happiness or composure or love that's not shattered by the recognition that, yeah, the body's got its own nature? And what does it mean to have a human mind where you might wake up in the morning and you're, you're filled with delight and then you're angry and then you're sad and then you're afraid and then you're joyful and this huge cascade of emotions constantly changing? And is there a still point anyway that isn't denying all of that or crushing it or trying to annihilate it? But is there a kind of happiness we can have anyway that's not dependent on the fragility of changing circumstance? So that was the Buddha's quest. And it said that the answers he came to or the resolutions he came to, he came to through the power of his own awareness. It's a self-witnessed truth. And just as he had that kind of capacity, so do we, each one of us. We can discern our very fundamental questions about life so that we're not just living mechanically, you know, kind of stupidly in a, in a dream. But we really can awaken, all of us. When I first went to India, which was in 1970, to study meditation... I remember looking at a Buddha statue, which I mean, I'd seen, you know, kind of growing up in New York and Chinese restaurants and things like that, but it's the first time I'd really seen one held as a, a kind of sacred object. And I remember my impression then of the Buddha as a completely integrated being, whereas so many of us would say, and I certainly felt, about myself at that time, I felt my life was really fragmented. And so many of us would say, you know, that we're like one person when we're at work and a different person with our families, and maybe we're filled with incredible loving kindness when we're all alone, but we're terrified of people, or we're fine when we're with people and we can't bear to be alone, and our lives are just cut up into these, in these segments. And I saw the Buddha as a whole being, 
somebody who wasn't fragmented, wasn't compartmentalized, who was who he was, where the threads of wisdom and compassion were guiding his life, whether he was alone or with others, whether he was still or wandering throughout India, he was who he was and very whole. And that's what I wanted for myself. So to take refuge in the Buddha, whether we see him as that kind of integrated being or someone who has fulfilled the potential of a human being by living with understanding, with wisdom, with boundless compassion. It's the recognition that when we look at the Buddha, we're seeing something about ourselves and our own capacity, not just to be stuck and to be mindless, but to grow and to change and to be free. So it's taking refuge in the Buddha. We take refuge in the Dharma, which, as I said, is commonly translated as his teaching, but also means... Um, the laws of nature, the truth of things, seeing things the way they are, recognizing that it's this moment's truth that is our vehicle to a greater truth, a bigger truth, to be able to honor and, and be honest about, yes, this is what's happening. Also means being able to trust the laws of nature as they unfold. So many times in meditation practice, Um, as in many things, it's hard for us to find that place of balance which is just what we need to do and no more. I sometimes say one of the great spiritual experiences of my life was when I was in New York City some years ago checking into a hotel and I was riding up in the elevator when I had the brilliant thought, the realization that I was carrying my very heavy suitcase in my arms. And I thought, put it down. The elevator will carry it for you. You know, sometimes we're like that. We need to trust in the unfolding of a process. Do what we need to do, and then let nature take its course. And we take refuge in the Sangha, which is has many meanings. It means uh, most classically the community of monks and nuns who have preserved this teaching um, through centuries. It means the community of beings, of men and women and children who from the beginning of time have been willing to be unconventional, to take a risk, to step away, to investigate, to live consciously and have come to a a degree of freedom. And it means, in a contemporary sense, the community who is gathered here together as we support one another, as we, uh, in some ways, help one another on this path, to recognize that no matter what, however alone it might look, Um, no matter how solitary or isolated an activity it might appear, that meditation practice isn't something that we never do just for ourselves alone. We're always doing it with this sense of this bigger picture of life, of our connection to one another. Taking refuge in the sangha, sometimes when I, I do that myself, when I take refuge in the sangha, I feel like I am joining a stream of beings. It just opens up my mind to the recognition of all of that sense of lineage and all of that history and all of these beings that I am a part of. 
in being able to look a little deeper into life. So that's the three refuges. And then uh, we go on to undertake the five precepts, which are the uh, ethical guidelines that really create the community, um, that support the community that, that we are bringing together uh, for this time. And many of you have heard me tell the story about uh, very soon after we opened the center in 1976, some friends of ours came to us and said, and this, of course, was a long time ago in our society when meditation practice was awfully strange and I would go maybe to a party or some social situation and uh, people would say to me, well, what do you do? And I'd say, I teach meditation. And they would kind of sidle away, like, oh, you're really weird, you know? That's so strange. And and things have changed very much but uh, these days, but that was back then. And so these friends came to us and said, you know, our parents are extremely distressed about this this strange new hobby we have of meditating. And um, don't you think it would be great if you taught a retreat for these hostile, angry, frightened people? <laughs> and, you know, brought them all together in Barry. And, and we said, oh, sure. And that was um, what was then called the parents' retreat. And uh, it was extremely intense. We did it a few times. Um, and we knew that they couldn't be silent, uh, especially during meals, which as I'm sure you know or will experience, is very strange in the beginning. You know, we're not accustomed to eating and actually eating. <laughs> you know, we're used to eating and talking and reading and listening to the radio all at the same time. And so we knew that they couldn't abide a silent meal. So we didn't have silent meals, and we ate with them. And I remember in the very first morning of the first day, I was sitting next to Joseph Goldstein, and, and one of the parents leaned across the table and looked at him and said, you've kidnapped my daughter and brainwashed her, and it's not going to happen to me. (laughs) So that was the general tenor of the retreat um, in the early days. And, of course, people went through lots of changes. Um, But I remember uh, maybe most clearly about the retreat how uh, nervous people were about their possessions because it's so unusual to be in a community where you feel safe. And that people would come into the meditation hall with mounds of belongings, you know, and, and they would just have, like, these whole existences here, you know, and, and they'd have to carry it all out again when they left and carry it all back. And, and how many times people would lock the door behind them, and, of course, we don't have any keys, you know, so then somebody would have to run around and look for a master key to try to let them back into their room. And, and it was so evocative of how frightened we usually are. As, as we live. And how remarkable it is to come to a place like this and create together this kind of community. We don't have to be that way. Where we can feel at ease and we can feel safe and we can extend that sense to others, that, that degree of respect and care to others. And we do that through undertaking for the time that we're here together Um, these five precepts. And they are, uh, first, we undertake the precept to refrain from killing any living being, so not to intentionally harm. 
but instead to use this time as a time of developing a reverence for all of life. And we undertake a precept not to steal or not to take that which has not been offered. And it's so interesting, you know, where we see so much come up in our minds about what we want and what we should have and, and actually to refrain from that kind of grabbing and, and instead developing a, a sense of contentment and ease with what we do have. We undertake a precept to refrain from lying, which we extend in the nature of the retreat to a precept about silence, where there are many opportunities where you may be speaking to one of the teachers or um, asking a question in the hall, something like that. But in terms of just conversation between yourselves, we ask you to undertake this precept of silence. And that includes, you know, writing non-essential notes or um, gazing endlessly into somebody's eyes or, or whatever it might be. You know, not because we don't like each other, but it is such an unusual opportunity. You know, many times when people think about being silent, they, it stands out as maybe the most formidable part of the retreat. You know, and people say, I don't think I can do it, and I think I'm going to hate it, or even, you know, they have a betting pool going on in my office about how long I'll last, or, you know, so many things. But almost always, looking back, it's the aspect of the retreat people point to as having been the most beautiful. Because it's like for once in our lives, we can be quiet. We can just be ourselves. We don't have to present ourselves to the world as special or difficult or interesting or boring or anything. It's about being with our own experience. So it's very beautiful. And as part of that, we also ask you um, not to engage in, in kind of endless reading and writing. You know, it's not... Uh, I mean, nobody's going to check, you know, and it's not, and it's not kind of, uh, you know, the end of the world if you, if you read a poem or something like that. But um, you think about how much of our lives we tend to not be claiming our ability to understand the truth for ourselves, but we're looking at someone else's experience of understanding the truth. And we defer our experience. We deflect. We don't honor or trust what is happening to us right now. And so rather than stopping a process in order to write lengthily about it or read someone else's experience of their spiritual life, we come here to have one of our own. And so that is all part of that, that precept we undertake a precept to refrain from sexual activity. In worldly terms, that sexual misconduct, not using our sexual energy in a way that causes harm to ourselves or to others. But in the context of intensive retreat, that becomes celibacy so that we're not distracted and we're not actually um, kind of deflecting that energy into action, but being able to look at almost like the very nature of desire itself and to utilize that energy. And then we undertake a precept to refrain from taking intoxicants. Um, the way the precept literally reads is intoxicants that cloud the mind or cause heedlessness. 
it's drugs, recreational drugs, not prescription medication, recreational drugs and alcohol that in some way distort our consciousness, but rather using the, the power of mind that is inherent in our own minds and our own awareness to discover, to, to learn, um, and to grow. So Susan, at this point, is, is going to formally lead us in the refuges and precepts, and we'll do a short sitting together and then uh, break for the night and begin again tomorrow morning with, um, well, she'll describe it, but we'll uh, move into the, the rhythm of the retreat with sitting meditation and walking meditation and this really incredible opportunity just to be with ourselves and be with one another. I'm just thinking maybe you should take a minute to stretch your legs since you've been here for an hour already. So I was planning to lead us uh, in chanting these refuges and precepts in Pali, but I think that we didn't get the chant sheets copied and handed out yet. <laughs> so you'll get those tomorrow, and we'll do it another time in Pali. But for tonight, I'll just uh, repeat the refuges and precepts that Sharon just explained in English and you can just reflect on them and uh, repeat them to yourself silently. Um, so to commit to them as a group together in that way. Traditionally, the precepts are, uh, the refuges are taken uh, three times, so I'll repeat them three times. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. 
and the precepts. I undertake the precept to refrain from killing or harming any living beings. I undertake the precept to refrain from stealing or taking what is not freely offered. I undertake the precept to refrain from lying and to uphold noble silence. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the precept to refrain from using intoxicants. Thank you. So we know that it's late. You've come a long way. Probably some of you at least have come a long way. And just to get here takes a lot of energy. So we're just going to have a short, very short sitting to formally begin this retreat together. And as Sharon said, the instructions for the meditation will be elaborated on tomorrow morning and each morning following uh, throughout the week. But for now, for this first sitting, this short sitting, if you could just find a comfortable posture where your back is relatively straight and upright See if you can have a sense of openness through your shoulders and chest. That openness that can represent a willingness to meet your experience. And this practice is done with the eyes closed. So if you're comfortable with that, you can close your eyes. And for the first few minutes of this sitting, just see if you can get a sense of your body seated on the cushion or the chair. See if you can find a sense of balance energetically between uprightness in the body, wakefulness, and also relaxation, ease.
In this way, we're using the sensations of our bodies seated here to arrive in this present moment as a way of connecting with this present moment. you might just feel the contact of your sit bones with your seat or the sensations in your hands. Or any areas of tension in the body that are making themselves known. Just noticing it. And then allow your attention to come to the movement of your breath. Maybe at the belly or chest or maybe at the nose where the air flows in and out. Just do your best to connect with that movement of breath in whatever way it's being known for you in this moment. And when the mind wanders, as it will, just notice that you've left the breath. See if you can practice letting go and then returning, reconnecting with the breath. It doesn't matter how many times you do that. As Sharon said, this practice is so much about letting go and beginning again.
you have energy and you'd like to stay up and sit, please do. But um, also, please feel free to get a good night's rest. Um, And on that note, (laughs) the person who signed up for the uh, job of being early morning bell ringer for the first sitting, you have the day off tomorrow. So the early morning sit tomorrow is optional. Uh, Just in case you're arriving from some distance and you're quite tired, uh, you don't need to be uh, getting up so early on the first day. So if you wake up and you want to sit, please do. Otherwise, uh, we'll see you at 8.30. Rest well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.